Life is complex. Join us for the simple gifts of wisdom, love, and delight in the written word. Plato's Republic, Book 7 Part 2 A matter of spinning a potsherd, but of turning a soul from a day that is a kind of night to the true day, the ascent to what is, which we say is true philosophy. Indeed. Then mustn't we try to discover the subjects that have the power to bring this about? Of course. So what subject is it, Glaucon, that draws the soul from the realm of becoming to the realm of what is? And it occurs to me as I'm speaking that we said, didn't we, that it is necessary for the prospective rulers to be athletes in war when they're young. Yes, we did. Then the subject we're looking for must also have this characteristic in addition to the former one. Which one? It mustn't be useless to warlike men. If that's at all possible, it mustn't. Now, prior to this, we educated them in music and poetry and physical training. We did. And physical training is concerned with what comes into being and dies, for it oversees the growth and decay of the body. Apparently. So it couldn't be the subject we're looking for. No, it couldn't. Then could it be the music and poetry we described before? But that, if you remember, is just the counterpart of physical training. It educated the guardians through habits. Its harmonies gave them a certain harmoniousness, not knowledge. Its rhythms gave them a certain rhythmical quality. And its stories, whether fictional or nearer the truth, cultivated other habits akin to these. But as for the subject you're looking for now, there's nothing like that in music and poetry. Your reminder is exactly to the point. There's really nothing like that in music and poetry. But, Glaucon, what is there that does have this? The crafts all seem to be base or mechanical. How could they be otherwise? But apart from music and poetry, physical training and the crafts, what subject is left? Well, if we can't find anything apart from these, let's consider one of the subjects that touches all of them. What sort of thing? For example, that common thing that every craft, every type of thought, and every science uses, and that is among the first compulsory subjects for everyone. What's that? That inconsequential matter of distinguishing the one, the two, and the three. In short, I mean number and calculation. For isn't it true that every craft and science must have a share in that? They certainly must. Then so must warfare. Absolutely. In the tragedies, at any rate, Palamides is always showing up Agamemnon as a totally ridiculous general. Haven't you noticed? He says that, by inventing numbers, he established how many troops there were in the Trojan army and counted their ships and everything else implying that they were uncounted before, and that Agamemnon, if indeed he didn't know how to count, didn't even know how many feet he had. What kind of general do you think that made him? A very strange one, if that's true. Then won't we set down this subject as compulsory for a warrior, so that he is able to count and calculate? More compulsory than anything, if, that is, he's to understand anything about setting his troops in order, or if he's even to be properly human. Then, do you notice the same thing about this subject that I do? What's that? 
that this turns out to be one of the subjects we were looking for that naturally lead to understanding. But no one uses it correctly, namely as something that is really fitted in every way to draw one towards being. What do you mean? I'll try to make my view clear as follows. I'll distinguish for myself the things that do or don't lead in the direction we mentioned, and you must study them along with me and either agree or disagree, and that way we may come to know more clearly whether things are indeed as I divine. Point them out. I'll point out then, if you can grasp it, that some sense perceptions don't summon the understanding to look into them, because the judgment of sense perception is itself adequate while others encourage it in every way to look into them, because sense perception seems to produce no sound result. You're obviously referring to things appearing in the distance and to Trump wheel paintings. You're not quite getting my meaning. Then what do you mean? The ones that don't summon the understanding are all those that don't go off into opposite perceptions at the same time. But the ones that do go off in that way I call summoners. Whenever sense perception doesn't declare one thing any more than its opposite, no matter whether the object striking the senses is near at hand or far away, you'll understand my meaning better if I put it this way. These, we say, are three fingers. The smallest, the second, and the middle finger. That's right. Assume that I'm talking about them as being seen from close by. Now, this is my question about them. What? It's apparent that each of them is equally a finger, and it makes no difference in this regard whether the finger is seen to be in the middle or at either end, whether it is dark or pale, thick or thin, or anything else of that sort. For in all these cases, an ordinary soul isn't compelled to ask the understanding what a finger is, since sight doesn't suggest to it that a finger is at the same time the opposite of a finger. No, it doesn't. Therefore, it isn't likely that anything of that sort would summon or awaken the understanding. No, it isn't. But what about the bigness and smallness of fingers? Does sight perceive them adequately? Does it make no difference to it whether the finger is in the middle or at the end? And is it the same with the sense of touch as regards the thick and the thin, the hard and the soft? And do the other senses reveal such things clearly and adequately? Doesn't each of them rather do the following? The sense that is set over the hard is, in the first place, of necessity also set over the soft, and it reports to the soul that the same thing is perceived by it to be both hard and soft. That's right. And isn't it necessary that in such cases the soul is puzzled as to what this sense means by the hard, if it indicates that the same thing is also soft, or what it means by the light and the heavy, if it indicates that the heavy is light, or the light heavy. Yes, indeed, these are strange reports for the soul to receive, and they do demand to be looked into. Then it's likely that in such cases the soul, summoning calculation and understanding, first tries to determine whether each of the things announced to it is one or two. Of course, if it's evidently two, won't each be evidently distinct and one? Yes. Then, if each is one, and both two, the soul will understand that the two are separate, for it wouldn't understand the inseparable to be two, but rather one. That's right. Sight, however, 
saw the big and small, not as separate, but as mixed up together. Isn't that so? Yes. And in order to get clear about all this, understanding was compelled to see the big and the small, not as mixed up together, but as separate, the opposite way from sight. True. And isn't it from these cases that it first occurs to us to ask what the big is and what the small is? Absolutely. And because of this, we called the one the intelligible and the other the visible. That's right. This, then, is what I was trying to express before, when I said that some things summon thought, while others don't. Those that strike the relevant sense at the same time as their opposites, I call summoners. Those that don't do this do not awaken understanding. Now I understand, and I think you're right. Well, then, to which of them do number and the one belong? I don't know. Reason it out from what was said before. If the one is adequately seen itself by itself, or is so perceived by any of the other senses, then, as we were saying in the case of fingers, it wouldn't draw the soul towards being. But if something opposite to it is always seen at the same time, so that nothing is apparently any more one than the opposite of one, then something would be needed to judge the matter. The soul would then be puzzled, would look for an answer would stir up its understanding and would ask what the one itself is. And so this would be among the subjects that lead the soul and turn it around towards the study of that which is. But surely the sight of the one does possess this characteristic to a remarkable degree. For we see the same thing to be both one and an unlimited number at the same time. Then, if this is true of the one, won't it also be true of all numbers? Of course. Now, calculation and arithmetic are wholly concerned with numbers. That's right. Then, evidently, they lead us towards truth. Supernaturally so. Then they belong, it seems, to the subjects we're seeking. They are compulsory for warriors because of their orderly ranks and for philosophers because they have to learn to rise up out of becoming and grasp being, if they are ever to become rational. That's right. And our guardian must be both a warrior and a philosopher. Certainly. Then it would be appropriate, Glaucon, to legislate this subject for those who are going to share in the highest offices in the city, and to persuade them to turn to calculation and take it up. Not as laymen do but staying with it until they reach the study of the natures of the numbers by means of understanding itself, nor like tradesmen and retailers, for the sake of buying and selling, but for the sake of war, and for ease in turning the soul around, away from becoming, and towards truth and being. Well put. Moreover, it strikes me, now that it has been mentioned, how sophisticated the subject of calculation is and in how many ways it is useful for our purposes, provided that one practices it for the sake of knowing rather than trading. Well, how is it useful? In the very way we were talking about. It leads the soul forcibly upward and compels it to discuss the numbers themselves, never permitting anyone to propose for discussion numbers attached to visible or tangible bodies. 
you know what those who are clever in these matters are like. If, in the course of the argument, someone tries to divide the one itself, they laugh and won't permit it. If you divide it, they multiply it, taking care that one thing never be found to be many parts rather than one. That's very true. Then what do you think would happen, Glaucon, if someone were to ask them, What kind of numbers are you talking about in which the one is as you assume it to be? Each one equal to every other, without the least difference, and containing no internal parts. I think they'd answer that they are talking about those numbers that can be grasped only in thought, and can't be dealt with in any other way. Then do you see that it's likely that this subject really is compulsory for us, since it apparently compels the soul to use understanding itself, on the truth itself? Indeed, it most certainly does do that. And what about those who are naturally good at calculation or reasoning? Have you already noticed that they're naturally sharp, so to speak, in all subjects? And that those who are slow at it, if they're educated and exercised in it, even if they're benefited in no other way, nonetheless improve and become generally sharper than they were? That's true. Moreover, I don't think you'll easily find subjects that are harder to learn or practice than this. No, indeed. Then for all these reasons, this subject isn't to be neglected, and the best natures must be educated in it. I agree. Let that, then, be one of our subjects. Second, let's consider whether the subject that comes next is also appropriate for our purposes. What subject is that? Do you mean geometry? That's the very one I had in mind. Insofar as it pertains to war, it's obviously appropriate. For when it comes to setting up camp, occupying a region, concentrating troops, deploying them, or with regard to any other formations an army adopts in battle or on the march, it makes all the difference whether someone is a geometer or not. But for things like that, even a little geometry, or calculation for that matter, would suffice. What we need to consider is whether the greater and more advanced part of it tends to make it easier to see the form of the good. And we say that anything has that tendency if it compels the soul to turn itself around towards the region in which lies the happiest of the things that are, the one the soul must see at any cost. You're right. Therefore, if geometry compels the soul to study being, it's appropriate. But if it compels it to study becoming, it's inappropriate. So we've said, at any rate. Now, no one with even a little experience of geometry will dispute that this science is entirely the opposite of what is said about it in the accounts of its practitioners. How do you mean? They give ridiculous accounts of it, though they can't help it, for they speak like practical men, and all their accounts refer to doing things. They talk of squaring, applying, adding, and the like whereas the entire subject is pursued for the sake of knowledge. Absolutely. And mustn't we also agree on a further point? What is that? That their accounts are for the sake of knowing what always is, not what comes into being and passes away. Well, that's easy to agree to, for geometry is knowledge of what always is. Then it draws the soul towards truth, and produces philosophic thought by directing upwards what we now wrongly direct downwards, as far as anything possibly can. Then, as far as we possibly can, we must require those in your fine city not to neglect geometry in any way, 
for even its byproducts are not insignificant. What are they? The ones concerned with war that you mentioned. But we also surely know that, when it comes to better understanding any subject, there is a world of difference between someone who has grasped geometry and someone who hasn't. Yes, by God, a world of difference. Then shall we set this down as a second subject for the young? Let's do so, he said. Tis the gift to be simple. Tis the gift to be free. Tis the gift to come down where we ought to be. And when we find ourselves in the place just right, twill be in the valley of love and delight. When true simplicity is gained, to bow and to bend, we will not be ashamed. To turn, turn, will be our delight, till by turning, turning, we come round right.